Hello and welcome to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we have a documentary episode for you on the story of how TPC Sawgrass, the venue of the Players' Championship, was designed and built. We actually released this episode this week last year as the fourth installment of our Fried Egg Stories series. Now, of course, you remember this week last year. We all do. It was when the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic really became clear in the U.S., and the Players' Championship was canceled after round one. In the midst of all of that, we released this episode, and people did listen to it. We really appreciated that, but we thought we would give it another chance this week, given that the Players' Championship, by all indications, will actually happen. This episode has interviews with Dean Beeman, Jerry Pate, Vernon Kelly, Tom Doak, Sean Martin, and Adam Shupak. And we thought they said some really interesting and valuable things about Pete Dye, about the process behind TPC Sawgrass, and about the influence of both Dye and what has become his most famous design. So without further ado, here is episode four of Fried Egg Stories, Alligator Pit, the making of TPC Sawgrass. The fried egg requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a, a fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. Sailing out of Gravesend, England, on the trade route, Captain William Hilton, one August morning in 1663 came upon an island peaceful and serene. What you're hearing is the telecast of the 1969 Heritage Golf Classic. It was a new event held at a new golf course. Harbortown Golf Links had been built by a 43-year-old architect named Pete Dye. Back then, Pete Dye wasn't well-known in a mainstream way, but his collaborator had a more recognizable name. Hello, I'm Jack Nicholas. This is Pete Dye. The two men lean against the balustrade of an outdoor stairway, both looking a little flushed in their full suits. Pete and I have worked together to design and build the Harbortown Golf Links here at Sea Pines Plantation. We're here on the eve of the first Heritage Golf Classic to be played over the Thanksgiving weekend. Having a golf tournament on the first year of operation, it's a dream come true for both of us. And the uh, golf course looks great, doesn't it, Pete? Looks beautiful, Jack. Really, it's been a lot of fun here, and... Uh... We have such a great contrast today, the, the Bermuda grasses with the bahayas, centipedes, pine straw, brings you back to Pinehurst and some of the uh, old British golf links. Looks great. It was quite a coup for Pete Dye to be there, on TV, side by side with the greatest golfer in the world. If you were a golf architect in 1969, you didn't get an awful lot of press, unless your name was Robert Trent Jones. So the opening of Harbortown marked a turning point in Pete Dye's career. Here was a course to be discussed. It was quirky and challenging, and it proved popular among the pros. One of those pros was Dean Beeman, who played his first Heritage in 1971. My favorite golf course was Harbortown, 
And Harbortown was, uh, today, is many players' favorite golf course. They really like it. Harbortown is a, is a golf course that uh, has just as many right, right to left as left to right holes. Uh, it has smaller greens. It uh, demands accuracy. It doesn't favor the, a long hitter versus a shorter hitter. So I thought it had a great balance, and, uh, and it was a great test of golf, and a fair test of golf. By 1978, Beeman was commissioner of the PGA Tour, and he had just negotiated the purchase of a wild, soggy property near Jacksonville, Florida. There, he intended to build a new venue for the Tournament Players' Championship. He wanted the course to tax the abilities of the world's best golfers while providing a better viewing experience for spectators. It would be a stadium golf course. And he knew the man to build it was Pete Dye. Today on Fried Egg Stories, we are going back four decades to the building of the stadium course at TPC Sawgrass in the 1982 Players' Championship. This story has been told and retold over and over, and since it's Players' Week right now, you'll no doubt be reminded by various journalists, TV hosts, and podcasters of the usual bits of lore. Dean Beeman purchasing the property for $1, Pete Dye sketching a routing on the back of a placemat, the creation of the island green, the complaints of the pros, and Jerry Pate after his victory in 82, hauling both Beeman and Die into the pond next to the 18th green. Don't get me wrong, we'll replay a few of those hits in this episode. We're not about that. But the real reason I'm curious about the TPC Sawgrass story has to do with the personalities involved and the contrasts between them. On the one hand, you had Pete Dye, Golf architecture was a passion for him, not just a business enterprise, and as we know in the way he designed courses, he was intensely hands-on and independent. He was an artist. On the other hand, you had the PGA Tour under the leadership of Dean Beeman. Thirteen years younger than Pete Dye, Beeman was energetic and assertive, a deal-maker. TPC Sawgrass was his venture, and he had ideas of his own about what it should be. No less an authority than Alice Dye, Pete's wife and most trusted design consultant, had her own doubts about the partnership between Dean and Pete. Oh, Pete, you're crazy, she said. You can't build for Dean. He's particular. He's efficient. He's all the things you aren't. He'll have his hands in there trying to tell you what to do. Don't do it. But he did. And oddly enough, it worked. In this episode of Fried Egg Stories, we'll try to figure out how. Today, the PGA Tour is the 800-pound gorilla of the golf world. Back in the 1970s, it was more like a newborn Capuchin. The Tournament Players Division, as it was then known, had just separated from the PGA of America, and it was a scrappy operation. Yeah, it was really a mom-and-pop shop back then. Adam Shupak is a golf journalist and the author of Golf's Driving Force, a biography of Dean Beeman. When the tour moved its headquarters to Pontevedra Beach, it was working out of a four-bedroom home with Dean's office was the master bedroom. The garage had the copier and postage meter. And, you know, for an intercom, they just yelled at each other. It was it was a really small staff. And Beeman took over in 1974 and used to say that, you know, the largest capital asset they had was an IBM Selectric typewriter. They had about 20 walkie-talkies and they did it on, they had three three Budweiser's and a can of beans. I mean, 
It was a time period where bowling was still attracting higher ratings than golf and tennis was the sport surging in popularity. So, you know, he had a lot of work cut out for him when he took over as commissioner. It didn't take long for Beeman to start making aggressive moves. He was in his mid-30s, and he had a background not only as an elite golfer who had won two U.S. amateurs, but also as an insurance broker. He knew his way around tax documents as well as boardroom negotiations. You know, he was an intense man. He's got these piercing blue eyes, and, you know, his friends used to say that, uh, you know, he could deliver a look that could exterminate head lice. And it was a job that required toughness. Because, you know, he had this quest to kind of roll over the the status quo in this traditional game, make golf a bigger sport. And, you know, he wanted to create a fan base that was much broader than just its own participants. And that meant doing things a little differently than they'd been done in the past. In his first year, Beeman converted the tour into a nonprofit, exempting it from paying income taxes and changing its financial fortunes. Beeman's other signature project was the new Tournament Players Championship, later known as the Players' Championship, and now apparently as just the Players. Anyway, from the beginning, Beeman had big plans for the event. The USGA had the US Open, the PGA of America had the PGA Championship, and the RNA had the Open. Why shouldn't the PGA Tour have its own major? Well, for one, it's not easy to manufacture prestige, but Beeman tried his best. After staging the first three Tournament Players' Championships at three different courses, he decided to stick with one, It had worked for the Masters, after all. So starting in 1977, the players absorbed the Greater Jacksonville Open and set up shop at Sawgrass Country Club. Which was a very dynamic golf course that was played in March where the wind blew. It was as close to an oceanside course as you could get. And so it had all those elements in it. But while Beeman liked Sawgrass as a course, he thought it could be improved as a venue. There was going to have to be a substantial investment made in the golf course and the facilities to accommodate both the players and the gallery and what we wanted to do. So Beeman attempted to buy Sawgrass Country Club, but for a variety of reasons, the deal never happened. Instead, he set out to build a new course, a home course for the tour. Just across the road from Sawgrass Country Club was a huge tract of wilderness, The owners knew that being in business with the Ascendant Golf Tour would raise the value of their land, so they sold 415 acres to Beeman for $1. From there, the commissioner pieced together financing from a non-recourse loan, a few dozen expensive founding memberships, and a few thousand cheap annual memberships. It was a tidy sum, acquired at minimal risk. As PGA Tour commissioner, he's working for a board, he's working for the players, and they had a lot of uh, doubts. And they pretty much said, you can't risk any of our assets. They didn't have a lot today, but they didn't want to put, put anything on the line. And if he failed, it was his neck. And so he went out and figured a way to do it where they just couldn't say no. And it was, you know, it is one of the most brilliant deals ever in, in the game of golf. After all of that, though, Beeman found himself in possession of a piece of land that, to put it mildly, seemed ill-suited to golf. Here's how Pete Dye described it in his autobiography, Bury Me in a Pop Bunker. When I first inspected the proposed site for the player's course, my only compatriots in the impenetrable swampy jungle were deer, alligators, wild boar, and deadly snakes. In order to cut a path, I followed deer tracks that led me to dry areas in the swamp before I nearly drowned in the depths of the marshland. 
Well, the, the property uh, was, uh, it was dead flat. It had a lot of standing water on it. There's substantial rainfall here in Jacksonville. Following rainfall, until it dried out, it was a pretty wet piece of property. It hadn't always been that way. The array of oak, pine, sweet gum, and magnolia trees on the site indicated that it had once been an upland. But when the Intracoastal Waterway was built nearby in the early 1900s, water began to collect on the site. By the 1970s, it was a Florida forest mashed up with a Florida swamp. But Beeman didn't mind that the property was flat and would need to be almost wholly re-engineered. To him, it was a blank slate where he could realize his vision for a stadium golf course. No golf course up to that point had been bought, had been built, that more interest was concentrated on the gallery than the players. Most golf courses are built for players. We needed to build one for, build one for the players, but we also had to, we want, I wanted to build a golf course that would be the first, what I called stadium, a stadium golf course. Well, I wanted, I wanted two things. There were two elements that I thought were extremely important in making a stadium course uh, as successful as it could be. One is that you did all you could to build the spectator areas in the highest places on the course and the golf courses on the low, on, on, and the playing surface on the lowest point of, of the golf course so that the spectators were actually walking with you and they would be above the players and so more people could see and that's the concept of a stadium the 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 second part of the concept that i thought was very important was the routing of the golf course should be in a way that produced the most what i call areas of activity instead of spreading the golf course out uh, and stringing the holes out they should wind back and forth in a way that created us hubs of activities where a spectator could maybe walk two or three hundred yards and see four or five different shots close to it, a, a couple of tees, a couple of greens, and, and maybe a fairway, uh, and not have to walk five miles to watch uh, a lot of golf because there are some spectators that want to follow their favorite player and others that just want to watch golf. It's striking how these ideas, although novel at the time, call to mind the features of certain time-tested tournament golf courses. As Pete Dye pointed out in his autobiography, the Lynx courses of Great Britain and Ireland have dunes that form natural spectator mounds along the fairways and around the greens. And Beeman's notion of hubs of activity reminded me of how Augusta National returns to certain landforms, creating gathering spots where spectators can see multiple greens and tees at once. Perhaps in part because he appreciated these historical references, Pete Dye took Beeman's stadium concept and ran with it. Over dinner at the Homestead Restaurant in Jacksonville, Dye sketched a back nine routing on that now famous placemat, and Beeman knew he had the right architect. Granted, a placemat is a lot easier to work with than a 415-acre alligator pit. We killed rattlesnakes and uh, moccasins all the time, almost every day. We're also alligators and uh, spiders and all kinds of stuff on the, out on the site. And you wore snake boots or, or you didn't really go out there. Vernon Kelly was the project manager at TPC Sawgrass. There was something out there we called 
blue gumbo clay. What it was was a almost a plastic kind of clay. It was it was like quicksand. And you, when you were digging sand out of the pits, because wherever you found sand, we we excavated it for the golf holes, and that's how we created 17, of course. Almost every, anywhere you see a lake out there, it's because there was sand in that area, and we didn't have the money to buy sand. And once you excavated the sand, sometimes you would hit this this gushy kind of clay material, and there didn't seem to be any bottom to it. And out on, uh, I think it was number seven, one night, we had a backhoe and we were digging, building the, the green, and he got into that stuff. And, I mean, literally within a, a couple of hours, it, it completely covered the tracks of the backhoe and was up to the cab, which is about five feet. We were able to pull it out with a, with a dozer, but um, it just showed how treacherous that site was. Early on, it could seem like the land itself was rejecting the golf course. The first thing we had to do was find the property. So we had the, the boundary surveyed, and the surveyors actually went out there and cut the survey line with machetes and then, you know, went from point to point and, and marked the points with, uh, with survey stakes and survey tape. Well, the vegetation grew so fast out there Literally within a couple of days, um, you could barely find the uh, cut lines, which were the pass from stake to stake, and you you couldn't find the stakes at all. And then there was the wildlife. So one day we were we were walking along. It was hot as could be, and the bugs were you know about to carry off mosquitoes and the rest. And, and I was talking to David. That would be David Postalweight, Pete Dye's construction superintendent. He said, uh, do you think there are any alligators out here? And I said, oh, yeah, they're all over the place. Because they can travel in this water. It's it's about knee high. And they can move from place to place. And he said, well, those who step on one. I said, well, we, <laughs> no, it's all, we won't do that. But you can find them because there'll be a, an alligator pit. And what they do is they'll be in a, an area of sawgrass. And they'll root around and uh, make a, make a alligator pit that's probably... 20 feet square around where they ripped up the vegetation and kind of dug the mud a little bit deeper. And that's where they live. And that's where they sleep in the water and all. They, they're scavengers. They don't eat live meat. They kill things and they put it in, in that pit to rot. And when it's real gamey, then they'll, they'll eat it. So when you come to one of those pits, you can tell what it is because it stinks to high heaven. And he said, boy, I'd hate to be in something like that and I said yeah me too so in the meantime we're pushing through we're pushing through the sawgrass and it's about five feet high and it's so thick I mean you you can't it just wears you out to push against it so leaning leaning into it I was in front and Dave was following me and all of a sudden I was leaning all of a sudden it just parted and I fell in this hole and I knew immediately what it was because it stunk to high heaven and I'd, I'd fallen into an alligator pit. Fortunately, the alligator wasn't home. But, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm laying in this thing, and my full concentration is on keeping my mouth above water. All of a sudden, David comes and pops right through the grass and falls right on top of me. <laughs> he looks around, he says, oh, my God, he says, this stinks to heaven. What is this? I said, it's what we were talking about. It's an alligator pit, <laughs> 
boom, he's gone. <laughs> he just disappeared. He, he took off so fast. How did you get out? Oh, I got out. I was I was right behind him. <laughs> but nothing happened to us. Kelly, who hadn't worked on a Pete Dye project before, quickly got a taste of Dye's creative process. When we first started working with him, we had to get a set of plans for the bank in order to secure the loan. It was the hardest thing to get a set of plans. Pete, Pete resisted it and just didn't want to give us a set of plans. And Finally, we were able to secure a set of plans from him. We gave them to the bank and everything's ready to go. So we were on the site the first day. We were walking out to the first tee. I said, oh, wait a minute, I forgot something. And I went running back to the truck and got the plans. And so I'm come running, <laughs> come running back, and Pete says to me, what's that? And I said, oh, these are the plans. And he said, put them back in the truck, and I don't want to see them again. <laughs> that, was the, that was the last time we had the plans on the job. And that, it seems to me, is exactly where Pete Dye and the tour could have found themselves at loggerheads. The craftsman versus the corporation, the improviser versus the plan followers. But as it turned out, Dean Beeman himself had a healthy regard for Dye's methods. Uh, that, that's Pete. Pete wants to be hands-on, boots on the ground. I want to see it. I don't want to see it on a piece of paper. I want to see it with my own eyes and my boots on the ground getting wet. And from Vernon Kelly's point of view... While there was a contrast in styles between Dye and Beeman, there was also a crucial element that kept the peace. There was a tremendous amount of respect between Dean and Pete, both ways, and Alice, both, both ways. Years later, Alice Dye admitted that her initial fears about the partnership had been unfounded. Dean was wonderful, she said. He let Pete do his thing. And both of them let Alice do her thing. She, too, was on site, and she, too, had a knack for boots-on-the-ground improvisation. According to plans, the par 317th would have water just on the right. But around the 17th green, as it happened, was some of the best sand on a generally mucky property. So the crew kept digging that sand out and using it as foundation for turf elsewhere on the course. Eventually, there was an enormous pit where the 17th hole was supposed to be. Here's how Pete Dye recounted what happened next. I called Alice over to discuss with her where we could find a new place for the green. She said, put the green back where it was and fill the hole with water. Simple enough. This sort of husband-wife collaboration was common on Dye projects. One summer when he was in college, Tom Doak worked on the crew at Dye's Long Cove Club on Hilton Head Island. They were renting a house three miles away in Sea Pines Plantation and you know, he would be there six or seven days a week at 6.30 in the morning with the crew. And Alice would come out maybe two or three times a week, you know, at lunchtime or in the afternoon. And she'd just come check on progress and see, you know, see what, what had been done since the last time she was out there, which, you know, even that would be more visits than most architects would make to their own construction sites. <laughs> and it was actually a, a guy on our crew that would have been a college roommate of PB's, uh, P, you know, PB was shaping on the golf course and Steve, his roommate was out there working on the labor crew. And I got to know Steve a little bit. And at one point, Steve just sort of said really casually, well, you know, nothing's really done out here until Miss Sally says it's okay. <laughs> and I thought that was funny at the time, but 
but I really did get the impression by the time I was done working for Pete and Alice that Alice had a lot to say about, you know, maybe not the final say, but she was certainly going to tell Pete if she didn't think, you know, she thought golf course was too hard or too easy, or if that feature didn't look right. And, you know, hers was the most important opinion to Pete. So while Pete Dye was firm in his own convictions, he was also eager to gather input from others. I can say as an architect, the hardest, one of the hardest things to do when you're in the middle of a construction project is have perspective on, you, you, you sort of, you've gotten away from playing golf on grass and you get to lose perspective of, is this too hard, is this too easy? And it really helps to have somebody out there you trust just as, you know, it's okay, it's fine, or it's, oh wait, are you sure you want to be doing that? You know, and most architects don't have that. The stadium course opened in 1980, but as the 82 Players' Championship approached, the first players to be held at TPC Sawgrass, the pressure on both Pete Dye and Dean Beeman ratcheted up. It was definitely a move forward for the PGA Tour because they were opening their own golf course. Sean Martin is a senior editor for PGATour.com, and in 2017, he wrote a feature called Leap of Faith behind the stadium course's wild debut at the 1982 Players' Championship. It's really great and a major inspiration for this episode. So now they were getting into the golf course business, and there was debate among the players whether or not the PGA Tour should be getting into the golf course business, whether or not that was a wise business decision. You know, you look at Adam Schupack's book about Dean Beeman, and the early tour was run out of basically, I believe it was a, a townhome or a condo at the Sawgrass Country Club. So it was a very modest organization. So to now all of a sudden get into the golf course business uh, was a, a risky venture. And the heat on Beeman and Die got turned up when the pros started to visit the new course. So Sawgrass Country Club, which hosted the players, was literally across the street. So when guys were in town for the players, they could go over and see TPC. It was carved out of a swamp. It was much more severe than what you see today. I think some of that is just when you build slopes and you shape them, they never look quite as severe as when they get grass on them. And so just, I think a course is always going to be severe when it's new. And then also, you know, combine some of that with just the wild surrounds off the fairway. If you strayed from uh, the corridors and hit it into that stuff. I mean, you're looking at lost balls. You're having trouble hacking out. It was very raw and, and very, very penal. The players began to make their opinions known. And not long after the grand opening, Dean Beeman oversaw some significant changes. It was difficult for me to envision what the final product would be based on looking at dirt. When the grass was on it, it was far different than I had imagined. And clearly, as soon as it opened, even before tour players came in and, and wanted to play it, I, I determined it was much too severe. The greens themselves were much too severe. So during the course of that year before the first tournament was held, a lot of work was done to take some of the severity out of the greens. But when the 82 Players' Championship arrived, the course was still very rugged and very difficult. Tom Doak headed down from Cornell during his spring break to watch the tournament. When Doak remembers that era of TPC Sawgrass, the image of a relatively bare-bones golf course comes to his mind. 
you know, one of the things about the TPC that most people don't realize is, you know, 1979-80 was terrible recession time in America. And the TPC was really built to be a low-maintenance golf course and, and a fairly low-budget golf course to build. And, of course, once it was open for three or four years, they all of a sudden it was like, well, this is the headquarters of the tour. We've got to spruce it up and we've got to make it look pretty and perfect. But that was not Pete's idea going into it. One of, one of the quotes I remember him saying at, at the original tournament in 1982 was, everything here is the dead opposite of Augusta on purpose. When Doak got to the tournament, he went out and found Pete Dye on the course. I think it was on like the 11th or 12th hole. Basically, he was just going around to one hole at a time and watching players come through and, you know, watching shots and seeing how they reacted. He wanted to see how they played them. He didn't want to hear how what they said. He didn't care so much what they said about it. You know, he just wanted to see if the shots worked the way he intended them to. And, you know, so we just go to one hole at a time and watch three or four groups play through. And Pete would see somebody hit a good shot and, and go, oh, that hole works. We can go to the next hole now. <laughs> But the pros were coming to their own conclusions. You know, going in, people knew, I think, that it was going to be a high-tension week. This was, uh, players were facing something that was new, something that was very penal. Players had an opportunity to voice their opinions and voice them strongly and loudly, and, and the press obviously was very willing to write them. And, and so you had some great quotes that, you know, I think players had probably spent some time thinking about. And so you had Ben Crenshaw, of all people, referring to it as Star Wars Golf, designed by Darth Vader. Uh, Jack Nicholas, after missing the cut, said, I've never been very good at stopping a five iron on the hood of a car. At least one player, however, was in his element. As far as the Pete Dye golf course, I was fortunate enough to play in 1974. I played the teeth of the dog at Casa de Campo. Jerry Pate was a 28-year-old U.S. amateur and U.S. Open champion. He had a silky, powerful swing and a fearless attitude, and he felt that he had a bead on Pete Dye designs. So I kind of understood Pete's strategies. I, I had a feel for how he liked to strategize holes. And there were just certain places you couldn't hit the ball. You just, if you hit it there, you were in trouble. And uh, when I saw the stadium course for the first time, a lot of people complained about it because the greens were sort of perched up off of the grade. So uh, you had a lot of areas that had, uh, I would call them false fronts in the front and the green ran off on the left side and the right side, and and there were very, very small pinnable areas that were little target areas. And if you didn't hit it there, the ball would gather some 15 to 30, 40 feet away from there into a low depression, either on the green or off the green. So you had to be extremely accurate with your iron. You had to be a good driver of the ball, which I was, and you had to be a really good iron player, which I was. So his design sort of played right into my hand. Still, like everyone else, Jerry Pate was struck by the rawness and difficulty of the new TPC. And, and you know, the golf course was wild and woolly then. It wasn't as naturally managed and manicured like, I mean, it wasn't as manicured today. It was natural with palmettos and just, you know, uh, basically bobcats and rattlesnakes 20 foot off the fairway and um, armadillos and you name it. So that day there was nothing on earth. And I mean that not with not with exaggeration. There was no other course on the earth more difficult and diabolical than that golf course. But unlike almost everyone else, Pete wasn't much bothered by the stadium course's severity. This was at least in part because he just wasn't the worrying type. Yeah, so he was this gregarious uh 
ball striker, just fun loving flagging shots. And uh, I guess maybe kind of cavalier in that way, aiming at flags and playing, I think kind of carefree because when you're that good of a ball striker, you can kind of do that because the ball's going to go where you aim. Pate also had the advantage of having played at the grand opening of TPC Sawgrass in 1980 and being paired with Dean Beeman himself. Beeman had shown him where he could be aggressive off the tee and taught him not to be intimidated by Dye's visuals. Look, the fairways are much wider than they appear. They're classic Pete Dye deception, you know, who build up bunkers or, or slopes that will make the fairway look smaller than they are. But the problem is, is, is really the fairways are, are wider than you think. And if you lay back off the tee, the second shot you're going to face into the greens is harder than the shot that you just avoided off the tee. So by playing safe off the tee, you're not really avoiding as much trouble as you think you are. And you're just bringing that much more into play around the greens. And so it is very visually intimidating, but you're also going to be best suited if you take the challenge on. So Pete was even more confident than usual going into the 82 players. Not only did he like Pete Dye courses and do well at them, not only did he have the right skill set and disposition, not only did he have intel on TPC Sawgrass, but he also had deep family connections to Jacksonville. His father had been born and raised there, and his mother had moved there in high school. Add it all up, and Jerry Pate felt that he had destiny on his side. I just knew I was going to win. It wasn't even a thought in my head. You know, I, I knew it all along. While he didn't exactly jump out to the lead, he hung around, shooting 70, 73, 70. After 54 holes, he was tied for sixth, three shots behind his brother-in-law Bruce Litsky and co-leader Brad Bryant. Meanwhile, Pate was very aware of the rumblings among veteran players about the course and the tour's new direction. And there was talk in the locker room that the, by the senior uh, Hall of Famers just before they were in the Hall of Fame, and I won't mention names, some of them are dead now, some are still alive in their 80s, and the talk was they were going to get, you know, have a coup and fire Dean because we had no business owning a golf course, and it was crazy. And it was competing against some of these famous golfers' design careers. They had their own design careers going, so they're thinking, well, wait a minute. PJ Tour is hiring some outside guy named Pete Dye to design their golf course. Why didn't they hire a player? It was vitriol. It was uh, anger. The players were mad, angry. Uh, I mean, you could use all those words. It was a big deal politically for Dean and Pete Dye, I can tell you. And there were some really top players in the, that were, as I said, Hall of Fame golfers that didn't like the golf course at all. In fact, missed the cut. Uh, and then once you get something that's negative in your mind, you don't like the golf course, you're done. There's no way you're going to play well. And I loved it. On Sunday, after birdieing 12, Pate had closed the gap between himself and the leaders. The year prior, he had won in Memphis, and in celebration, he had leapt into the lake by the 18th green. So rumors were already going around TPC Sawgrass that if he pulled off the victory, he would do the same today. So anyway, as I walked back to 13T, and I heard somebody kind of running up behind me, and they grabbed my arm. I turned around. It was Alice Dye. And she looked at me, and she said, you've got to win this thing, and you got to throw Pete in the lake. Alice's idea, it seems, was that a little playful public comeuppance might do some good. It might provide an outlet for the rising hostility toward her husband and their design business. Of course, Pete had been catching an ungodly amount of heat for this golf course, and... Uh, Alice, I think, was a little bit worried. Can I turn around and look at her? Just calm as can be. And everybody used to think, you know, when I played, I was cocky. I I really wasn't cocky. I just, 
you know, I knew in my heart I could pull it off. And I said, I'm going to win. Pate went on to par 13, birdie 14, and birdie the island 17th hole. He drove it right up the gut on 18 and had a five iron into the green. Until that point, the most famous moment in Pate's career had involved another 72nd hole five iron, this one at the 1976 U.S. Open. He hit it so close to a dangerous hole location that some accused him of pulling it. Today, the approach to the 18th at TPC Sawgrass is still a scary shot. Even when pros are hitting eight or nine irons, almost no one goes directly at the pin. But Pate did, with a five iron, and he knocked it to two feet. For me to hit that shot, it's like Ben Crenshaw hitting a, you know, a six-foot putt. He's not nervous. Jack Nicklaus isn't nervous on a six-foot putt. Tom Watson wasn't nervous on a six-foot putt. Lee Trevino was never nervous on a 90-yard wedge shot, and Jerry Pate was never nervous hitting a long iron shot. I mean, I... I, I, nerves weren't even in my vocabulary. And when I hit the five iron and I went to the press room and I think Tom Place was running the interview for the PJ Tour and he said, do you have any opening statements? And I go, yeah, I guess I, I guess I pulled another five iron. But let's go back for a moment to the 18th fairway, just after Pate had stiffed his approach. And the camera was on me, little Davy Finch, who worked for CBS, and Trakinian is in the truck. I knew that. And, uh, you know, all my buddies at CBS were there, and I have no idea what they've said. But as I walked up the 18th fairway, Davey Finch says, you're going to jump in a lake. And I said, Pete Dye will go for a swim. As he waited for the groups behind him to finish, Pete saw Dean Beeman's wife, Judy, who urged him to throw Dean in the water with Pete. As that was happening, CBS, with Vin Scully calling the action, was working a bit of TV magic. There was a, a gator that had been seen in the pond at 17. So Frank Trakinian, the great CBS producer, put up a split screen, and there's kind of waiting for Jerry to throw them in at the trophy ceremony on one side, and the other side is this gator in the water. But what Vin said was that this gator is on the lake at 17. The, the lake on 18 is not connected. And, and so the television viewers thinking they're about to jump into this gator-infested pond. Now, I didn't even think I was going to go in. I thought I would just throw them both in the lake and that would be it. And then they were out there, in, you know, in the lake. So I threw them both in the lake off the bulkhead and then I jumped in behind them. But, but you know, I, I never realized how high it was. And when I jumped in after the fact, I go back and look at those videos. Heck, it was about an eight foot off the water. That bulkhead was about eight foot. So it's a pretty big racing dive, but it'd be eight foot in the air. But we didn't care. There was so much... So much uh, adrenaline, uh, the emotion of winning. Uh, it was an exciting time, and it was, you know, a memory I'll never forget. It was, it was as great as winning the U.S. Open, I can tell you. Dean Beeman has his own way of remembering the experience. How did the water feel? Uh, it was, it was pretty ugly. <laughs> <laughs> the jump in the lake and its theater of just desserts may have taken the edge off the player's outrage. Dean Beeman kept his job, and Pete Dye kept designing courses for the PGA Tour. But the pro's opinion of the stadium course at TPC Sawgrass didn't change right away. After the tournament was over, Pete's in the locker room changing. He's just been thrown in the lake. Uh, Ed Sneed and Tom Weiskopf are waiting for him, and, and Pete knew both of them from Ohio. And they had a question about the 13th hole, which is a par three. There's water left, and the, the green is bisected by a, a pretty severe swale. 
And so the hole locations down on the left, they're by the water, but you can use that swale to funnel the tee shot towards the hole. However, if you miss on the wrong side of it, you're now putting down a very steep slope to the hole. Two putting is almost impossible. So Ed and Tom had played together. They said their tee shots landed within two feet of each other. One of them funneled down towards the hole. The other uh, stayed up top. And, and they were asking, how can we have a golf course where two shots that land within two feet of each other have such vastly different results? That doesn't seem fair. Pete looks at them and he says, well, the only reason that happened is because you guys are chicken. If you were aiming at the hole, that two feet wouldn't have mattered at all. But you're afraid of the water on the left, so you're aiming for a slope in the green to try to save you. And that has too small of a margin for error, which you just told me you're not good enough to hit. In spite of appearances, though, Pete Dye was not unmoved by the criticism. He wrote in his autobiography, The verbal assault against our new creation hit like a stake in my heart. Still, he saw no evidence that the course was too hard. After all, Jerry Pate had won at 8-under. In order to make the top 10, you had to break par. In fact, Dye said at the time, when they learn how to play the stadium course, we may have to put in some more obstacles to keep them totally frustrated. But ultimately, it wasn't Dye's call. After the 83 Tournament Players Championship, the pros revolted. According to Adam Shupak's account, a group of top players sent a letter of complaint to Commissioner Beeman. Among the signees were Ben Crenshaw, Hale Irwin, Jack Nicholas, Craig Stadler, Tom Watson, and Tom Weiskopf. Quickly, Beeman arranged a meeting at TPC Sawgrass between Pete Dye and a player committee. They toured the course, and the players grilled Dye about the green contours. The commissioner saw their side. Well, some of the lowest areas on the greens that were pin positions were in places that the green surfaces uh, at the higher part of those greens were so severe that the ball coming off the high side down to the low side wouldn't stay on the green at all. So it was literally impossible to not three-putt uh, many, many times from, tra- from one transition part of a green to another. And the players were right. It was too severe. It was still too severe to be really a fair test of golf. You know, our, our, feel- our feelings were still hurt, but they were right. <laughs> Months later, Ben Crenshaw, the co-chair of the Architectural Committee, presented a list of changes to be made to the stadium course. At that point... Die almost certainly saw the writing on the wall. How do you think Mr. Die reacted to or felt about um, the fact that he w- was modifying or had to modify the course? Uh, the answer is he was very reluctant to make the changes that we wanted made. He wanted it as difficult he could because he wanted to challenge the best players in the world. But And he didn't care. He, he didn't think golf was fair in the first place. So he was he was not uh, he was not happy with the, with the continual modifications of it. But the modifications were made, mostly carried out by Dye's associate Bobby Weed between '83 and '88. Weed once said, "One of my biggest regrets of being in the business is I was the one who had to make all the changes." Those changes did, however, mollify the pros and TPC Sawgrass, which today boasts Augusta-like conditions complete with flower beds accenting the arena of the 17th hole, is now highly regarded among PGA Tour members. In a way, it's become a symbol of the tour that Dean Beeman built. Sturdy, impressive, and efficiently run. Here's Adam Shupak. Dean came along at a time where the PGA Tour was 
just this mom and pop shop. And he really, during his 20 years, 10 years, assembled the building blocks that are the foundation of the modern PGA Tour. And I feel like the PGA Tour is still running the, the Dean Beeman playbook. It's worked all this time and it continues to seem um, almost uh, invincible and impenetrable to whatever comes along. It's just a, it'd be a well-oiled machine. Now, whether the alterations to Dai's original design were for the best remains a topic of debate in the golf world, one that breaks down along familiar lines. If you're a competitive or score-oriented golfer, if you prize fairness in course design, whatever that means, you'll likely see the changes as positive, even necessary. Others may argue that fairness is an irrelevant concern, especially when everyone is competing on the same course. These people may wish that more of the rugged quirk of Dai's original design had been preserved. Tom Doak takes a fairly diplomatic view. I don't know if you can say the changes made the course better or worse. Uh, you know, it's all it's all a matter of opinion, and it's all your perspective on what the objective of the course should try to be. To me, it just made it different than the original intention. You know, in terms of how much pressure it put on the players to hit good shots consistently through the golf course. But, the, you know, the bottom line is, you know, pros don't like shooting 75 when they have an average to poor day. You know, they don't mind not shooting 67 all the time, but they don't, they don't want the numbers to get up there. And the TPC, when you're having a bad day, it darn well reflected it on the scorecard. In a sense, Alistair's prediction had come true, but it wasn't Dean Beeman specifically who came into conflict with her husband. It was the players, and they had the last word. At some point, perhaps during that walk around TPC Sawgrass with the committee in 1983, he must have recognized that fact. After his triumph at the 82 players, Jerry Pate was living large. And I had a 10-year exemption. It was a big deal. The most money anybody had ever won, $90,000, a lot of endorsements. You know, life was great. Had my own private plane. Jack and Arnold and I were the only three players that had a private plane on the tour at that time. And I was 28, you know, and pretty big, tall cotton, I guess you could say, for a Southern boy. And then in one swing in in, uh, the 1st of June, that was kind of into my golfing competitive career. He was on the driving range at Pensacola, preparing for the Open by practicing one-iron stingers into the wind off of hard ground. On one swing, he felt his left shoulder pop. And that injury turned Jerry Pate into one of golf's great what-if stories. He never won again on the PGA Tour. But he stayed in the golf business, eventually starting a course design firm of his own. Over the years, he became close with Pete and Alice Dye. Their friendship had begun in 1974, when a 21-year-old Pate played the world amateur at Teeth of the Dog. Today, his firm looks after Teeth of the Dog and the other Dye courses at Casa de Campo. We've sort of taken on the role to keep the, the integrity, the aesthetics of the uh, architecture and agronomics there. I go to Casa de Campo. I'm going next week down there, in fact. I go, you know, go down there a lot. And so it's a great honor to have met Pete Dye as, as a 21-year-old kid, and now I'm sort of stepped in his place at one of his favorite places, and that's where he died. If you listen to the Fried Egg podcast, you already know that Pete and Alice Dye are no longer with us. Pete passed away in January at the age of 95 after a battle with Alzheimer's. Alice was 91 when she died in February of last year. Their longtime friends, like Dean Beeman, Vernon Kelly, and Jerry Pate, tend to speak about Pete and Alice in terms both personal and historical. Their generosity, their accomplishments, 
their eccentric, nomadic lifestyle, their influence on a generation of architects, their commitment to the game and to the craft. They didn't build golf courses for the money. They, gave, they built golf courses because Alice was a great amateur player in her own right. Her husband was a, really a fine amateur player, and they gave so much to the game. Uh, I guess Alice was the first woman to sit on the PGA of America board that, that I remember. And I know she was head of the, the Architects Society. I mean, they were, re- you know, for a woman, she did un- incredible things in, our, in a man's world. And, of course, Pete was a legend. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, the stories Pete used to tell me about how he got fired by Augie Bush or fired by Herb Kohler, and then they'd hire him back. And I'm sure Dean wanted to fire him a few times. He was quite a character, you know. Uh, and, and you couldn't help but love Pete Dye. And Alice was just, gosh, she was the salt of the earth. She was like a mother to me, I'll tell you. And so I, I dearly miss them both. I dearly miss them both. This was the fourth episode of Fried Egg Stories. It was created and hosted by me, Garrett Morrison, with mixing and engineering from Jay Virick. Our executive producer is Andy Johnson. Thanks for listening.